gathered together from the far reaches of the internet are assembled a network of podcasts dedicated to the first and greatest superhero, Superman. Superman. The Superman Podcast Network is dedicated to covering all aspects of the Superman legend, featuring The Thrilling Adventures of Superman, Golden Age Superman, The Superman Fan Podcast, Superman in the Bronze Age, From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast. I've got a few things to say about Superman, The Superman Vidcast, The World's Best Podcast, and Radio Kale from supermanhomepage.com, as well as the audio dramas Superman, Last Son of Krypton, and Supergirl, Last Daughter of Krypton from Pendant Audio Production. Join hosts Michael Bradley, John Wilson, Billy Hogan, Charlie Niemeyer, J. David Weeder, Jeffrey Taylor, Michael Bailey, Scott Gardner, Cayman Stoll, I'm Isaac, I'm Adam, Dave Yunus, and co-host Scotty V. at supermanpodcastnetwork.com. Rocketed as a baby from the exploding planet Krypton, Kal-El came to Earth, whose environment gave him fantastic powers. In Metropolis, he poses as TV newsman Clark Kent, but battles evil the world over as Superman. Superman. Hello everyone, and welcome to episode 51 of Superman of the Bronze Age, the only podcast on the net covering Superman's adventures from 1970 to 1986. I am your mild-mannered host, Charlie Niemeyer, and today we're going to conclude Secret Origins Month with a look at Action Comics number 500. But first, I want to direct you to the show's website at www.supermanofthebronzeage.com, where not only will you find the show posting, but you'll also get to learn a little more about me, as well as find links to other great podcasts and comic-related blogs and sites. Plus, I've got some comics up for sale at pretty reasonable prices, if you ask me anyway, uh, ranging from Bronze Age books to today, so please come check it out, and it even includes trades and other stuff. Also, I'd like to direct you to check out Clockwork Comics at clockworkcomics.co.uk. Clockwork Comics is a new independent comics company producing free web comics and storybooks. The company was started by fellow Superman fan Adam Deschanel, who writes two of the series. All of the series are worth checking out, but especially Slipstream, which also has a bit of a Superman connection because it was written by Jeffrey Taylor of From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, drawn by Billy Hogan of the Superman Fan Podcast, and colored by little old me. Uh, There are currently two full issues or seasons available, and season three, as I'm recording this, just started. So please make sure you check it out and uh, let us know what you think. Next up, I've got an email. This email comes from Michael Bradley, uh, host of Superman in the... Not Superman in the Bronze Age, because that's my show. Ha <laughs> ha! Um, frequent, well, he's been on this show a couple times. He's also the host of The Thrilling Adventures of Superman, as well as Green Lantern's Light, which, if you believe it or not, is a Green Lantern podcast. So, Michael writes... 
First, a hearty welcome back to Superman in the Bronze Age, and congratulations again on hitting your 50th episode. Well, thank you. Second, I want to stress that I would totally visit a Superman Land amusement park. Even now, as a somewhat mature adult, I would totally go. Yeah, me too. Totally. But who in the world thought putting a Ma and Pa's Graves attraction at an amusement park would be a good idea? I can see the ads now. Hey, kitties! Come to the all-new Superman Land. Ride the thrilling rides. Ride the thrilling Superman roller coaster. Get a tasty snow cone. See the awesome tombstones. And play fun carnival games. Wait, what? Tombstones? Tombstones? It's the happiest and most superest place on Earth. And then there's graves. I shake my head at these Superman Land theme park planners. And what's worse, while I can understand the desire to be an all-inclusive... Or, and what's worse, while I can understand the desire to be all-inclusive, the Kent's death, at least in the context of the Bronze Age version of the origin, wasn't a huge part of the story, save for possibly being a catalyst for him moving out of Smallville. Let me be clear, the Kent's themselves are very important, but their deaths, not quite as much. Unlike Jerry Siegel's original version from Superman No. 1, wherein their deaths strengthened a determination that had been growing in his mind and led him to create the identity of Superman, in the Bronze Age, Clark had already had years of superheroing under his cape as Superboy. If you're making a Batman theme park, I can understand having the Wayne's Graves be part of it. Well, a tombstone attraction at an amusement park is still a completely ridiculous idea, but the Wayne's deaths are a pretty freaking big part of Batman's origin. Without the Wayne's death, there's no Batman. You can't say the same about the Kent's death, certainly not in the Bronze Age. At least that's how I feel about it. Oh, you mighty master of the Bronze Age might disagree. Anyway, welcome back. I'll miss the old chronological approach to covering the era, but look forward to the surprises the themed episodes will bring. Congrats again on episode 50. I eagerly await the next 50. Until I die and someone builds an amusement park in my honor with my grave as the main attraction, Michael Bradley. And then he had a P.S. Uh, from what Superman iteration is the musical cue you are using for the transition to and from promos? I dig it. Um... Well, let me answer that one first, because it's on the tip of my tongue. That is actually the little bit of uh, music you hear on the Ruby Spears 1988 Superman cartoon. Uh, that's actually the little, I guess you call it a stinger, but the music when they show the uh, episode title, the little card with Superman flying and... Lois with him, usually? I don't remember. Uh, but Superman flying, and it has the episode, like the Defendroids or something like that. And that's the music. And I just talked over it. Um, let's see. As far as the gravestones, I kind of responded to Michael via email before this, but I'll go ahead and say it again. I kind of agree. It is a little weird. It, I mean, if you're going to go for the whole story, I can understand it. Um, it is part of his life. It is part of Smallville. The graves have been there for a long time. Uh, they moved it to the backyard of the Kent's house in order to save them space of having to build a whole cemetery because that would be even more morbid than just the two gravestones. And it does make sense even though it's not as important as Batman's, it is, imp and it is an important part of his life. Once again, he was alone and he did not yet have anyone else other than Crypto that he could really talk to without having to worry about his secret identity which of course would make you feel even more alone. 
plus, you know, how uh, how cool would it have been to actually see something like that in real life? I mean, at one point, it was in the comics. There's an official Superman comic with the graves right in the backyard, and you would have gone to the theme park and seen it in the backyard. And more than likely, if the theme park had been built and it had become, you know, become popular enough to stick around for a while, I can assure you that that would have been a permanent part, a permanent change to the Superman mythos. Okay, and that about does it for the email. I just want to send a quick shout-out to Michael and his show, Thrilling Adventures of Superman, which recently hit the 75-episode mark. Congratulations to Michael. And here's his promo. Superman of the Bronze Age will be back after these messages. In a world where planets die... I have come to the conclusion Krypton is doomed. Did I hear him right? Where good and evil fight a never-ending battle. But millions of people will die. Billions. Once again, the press underestimates me. One man will become a hero. Every world needs its heroes, Clark. They inspire us to be better than we are. And they protect us from the darkness that's just around the corner. One man will rise to the challenge. Look, up in the sky, it's a bird! It's a plane! One man will wear spandex. Well, one thing's for sure, nobody's going to be looking at your face. Mom? <laughs> well, they don't call them tights for nothing. <laughs> Presenting The Thrilling Adventures of Superman, a podcast looking at the Man of Steel's history via his earliest adventures in comics, radio, and film. Featuring reviews, commentary, creator spotlights, and more. Join the adventure at GreatCrypton.com. The dawn of an age. The founding of a family. You know we haven't done enough research into the effects of cosmic rays. We've got to take that chance. Conditions are right tonight. Let's go. They're penetrating the ship. Our shielding isn't strong enough. I feel like I'm burning up. Too heavy. Can't move. Too heavy. We're all alive. I feel so strange. You're fading away. I can't see you at all anymore. Look what's happened to you. You're changing. Oh, Reed, not you too. What happened to me? To all of us. I can fly. We gotta use that power to help mankind, right? And so was born the Fantastic Four. For soon, the mole man will have the entire world in his power. I am the mightiest living mortal on Earth. And half mankind shall feel that might. The Fantastic Four. Little do they dream they're the palms in the hands of Dr. Doom. The Human Torch will be the Puppet Master's next You Earthlings can't change the way I can. At least I'm the most powerful person on Earth. I've been expecting you, for I am a thinker. I vow never to return, my lord, until the Fantastic Four are no more and the Phantom is no more. You're in the presence of the awesome Ralatons, King of Kings, Master of Men, and Lord of the Seven Sons. Fool, you're just a muscular freak. 
Blind or halt! Stop! You must not enter the castle of Diablo! My journey has ended. This planet shall sustain the intellectual drain of all elemental life. So, speak Galactus! Flame on! It's clobbering time! The Fantastic Four from the very beginning witness the origins of a legend. The Fantasticast. FFcast.Libsyn.com Hey kids, comics! Hey Michael! Yes? We have to record a promo for our podcast. I've got one. Read our podcast. Read our podcast. You do know this is an audio medium. Watch our podcast. But you can watch podcasts, but not ours, because let's face it, we've got faces for radio. Um, no, wait, I've got it. Give me a second, right? What? Just listen to our podcast. Listen to our podcast. Snap it. It's short, sweet. I'm liking it. It's good. It's great. Not exactly telling people what our podcast's about, though, is it? We read comics. We read comics. That's true. It's good. Liking it. Liking this pitch. Carry on. Right. We talk about comics. We do. We talk about comics. We read comics, and then we talk about them, because we can't talk about them before we read them. Excellent. Keep going. And then we sing. Badly. Yes, well, badly is purely subjective, but how many other comic book podcasts do you know where people sing? Hey, kids, comics! Every Thursday at aplayland.podomatic.com We now return to Superman and the Bronze Age. Alright, Action Comics 500 with a cover date of October 1979, was likely released on July 16, 1979, with a cover price of $1. It's 64 pages of story with no ads. But don't worry, folks. Once I get to an issue with ads, I'll go over them. I promise. It's just the last issue didn't have any, this doesn't have any, and the book covered in the next episode won't have any either. So if you can just wait, ads will be back. Promise. The title of the story is The Life Story of Superman. It was written by Martin Pascoe, penciled by Kurt Swan, inked by Frank Ceramonte, lettered by Gaspar Saladino, told you he'd be back, colorist was Adrian Roy, who you would know more probably from her work on the Batman titles, and the editor was Julie Schwartz. And this story has been reprinted once, probably because it's so huge. Uh, but it's basically been reprinted in the Superman story from th- from Tor Books, which was first published in 1983. And I'm pretty sure it's been reprinted more recently because I bought the same little book at a Walden Books in the 90s. And I don't think they would have had several of these if they were from 1983. So, anyway. Our story begins as the previous origin story ends, in a very familiar fashion. Faster than a speeding bullet. More powerful than a locomotive. Able to leap tall buildings at a single bound. Look, up in the sky, it's a bird! It's a plane! It's Superman! Yes, it's Superman! Metropolis. At the city limits, the signs tell you that you're entering the home of Superman. They're proud of him, and grateful, and with good reason. Of all the cities on his adopted planet, this one is closest to his heart. That love is about to be repaid in kind. For much like the Flash Museum in Central City, Metropolis has constructed a Superman pavilion at the Metropolis World's Fair, and today is the grand opening. And on hand to join in the festivity, f- festivities, and on hand to join in on the festivities, 
Wow, I did it again. And on hand to join in the festivities are Perry White, Jimmy Olsen, Lois Lane, Steve Lombard, and Lana Lang. And who better to take everyone on the first tour through the pavilion? None other than the Man of Steel himself, Superman. And after a quick introduction from Mayor Harkness, Superman announces that in return for his help with the preparations for the pavilion's exhibits, the man who runs the pavilion will donate $1 million to Superman's favorite charity, which, in case you're wondering, in 2012 money would be roughly $3,169,214.88. And at this point, Superman is introduced to that man, J. Robert Arngrim. And after shaking hands with Arngrim, Superman uses his heat vision to cut the six-inch thick steel ribbon and leads the crowd inside. First stop is the Krypton exhibit, which causes some kids to ask what Krypton was like. Superman tells him that unfortunately repeated exposure to kryptonite has caused gaps in his super memory, so his early life on Krypton is pretty much a blank. Fortunately, as Arngrim reminds him, Superman donated his old mind probe array from his fortress, which he invented in his Superboy days, to access these lost memories. So with some prodding from the crowd, Superman agrees to use the ray, but, but, but apparently sitting in the chair activates a relay switch in a mysterious location which causes a mysterious man to get to work, because he won't get another chance to tap Superman's memory. Behind him is a large tube full of green smoke. So sitting in the chair of the mind probe array, the rays probe into Superman's mind, allowing him to picture, in his mind, the, the great city of Kryptonopolis, the city of his birth and the capital city of Krypton. He sees himself playing with his mother, Lara, while waiting for his father, Jarrell to return from speaking to the Science Council. After they recover from a ground quake, Jor-El returns in a depressed state. He tells them about his meeting with the Council and how they didn't believe him because their geophysical clock projects Krypton's continued existence for several more centuries. Believing his speech is nothing more than the ravings of a paranoid, he is dismissed. Temporarily exiting from the probe array, Superman tells the crowd that Jor-El's determination to save Krypton never wavered, and he continued working on building his proposed space arc fleet. Superman then returns to the ray, skipping ahead to a time closer to the end. This time, we see that Jor-El has placed his son's pet dog, Crypto, into a test rocket to launch it into orbit, but the rocket is struck by a meteor, which knocks it off course and prevents Jor-El from being able to bring the rocket back as it continues deep into space. Meanwhile, elsewhere, as Superman is reliving these scenes exactly the way he lived them so long ago, a young child who looks just like the baby Kal-El shares the same experience inside that same green smoke-filled tube from earlier, while the mysterious man looks on ominously. Back in the pavilion, Superman's recollections, recollections jump ahead to that fateful day. He can see Krypton coming apart and hear the screams outside his window. Jor-El has Lara bring Cal to the last test ship. While he's not sure how an adult weight might affect the trajectory or its chances of reaching its destination, he plans to use it to save both Lara and Cal. But to give her son a better chance of survival, Lara declines, stating that her place is by Jor-El's side. So he places the child in the rocket and launches it just as the planet finally explodes. This causes Superman to once again exit the probe array, overcome with emotion over the loss of his homeworld and his birth parents once again. And not his birth planets, which I had written in my notes.
After recovering, he leads the group into the Superboy room, which is smaller and contains fewer exhibits, which Superman explains is due to um, the fact that more detailed info about his younger years could give away his secret identity. However, he does tell everyone how his rocket made it to Earth, where an Earth couple found him and raised him as their son, and that they encouraged him to use his powers for good. While he really can't go any further than that, he can't help but remember the rocket crashing and being, and being thrown from the rocket just before it exploded. The explosion garnered the attention of Jonathan and Martha Kent, who happened to be passing by in their pickup truck at the time, and figured that the rocket was something being tested by the government. But, and when they found the child, Jonathan believed that he must be an alien to have survived without a scratch. Martha gets the idea of raising the boy as their own, but Jonathan refuses because there would be no way to explain him. But maybe there is. So, after hiding the wrecked rocket on their farm, the Kents take the child to the Smallville orphanage and leave him on the steps. Then, they wait a couple of days and ask about adopting and choose him to be their son and name him Clark. Over time, little Clark surprised them by exhibiting amazing abilities, which unfortunately caused a few problems, such as burning up his play clothes due to the air, fil air friction built up from riding his tricycle at super speed, which apparently did not melt the tires of the tricycle, which is kind of weird now that I think about it. Um, then one day, a freak lightning bolt started a fire in the attic. Clark was able to blow out the fire, but the Kents discovered that the blankets that he had been wrapped in inside the rocket were not even singed. So Martha unraveled the knit material, got Clark to cut the threads with his heat vision, and sewed him a, a new super play suit. Fortunately, being on a farm, it was much easier to keep Clark's powers a secret when he was younger. A few years later, after Clark had gained more control of his powers and was better at hiding them, the Kents moved into Smallville and purchased a general store. Determined to give Clark an as-close-to-normal life as possible, his first job was working at the store. Now, it doesn't say this, but from other stuff I've read, I know that, when it was, that this occurs when he turns eight. Uh, but when he turns eight, Clark believed that he was ready to start using his powers to help people, but realized he'd need a uniform so that he'd be instantly recognizable. So, after unraveling his old play suit and the leftover pieces of blanket, Martha created a new bodysuit, complete with red underwear. But he still needed more. Going to the remains of the rocket, he pulled out the seatbelt to be the belt for his costume, and used a super needle to stitch together the rocket's upholstery into red boots. Meanwhile, Jonathan designed the, designed the S-Shield to stand for his professional name, Superboy. Meanwhile, in a hidden laboratory, the young clone of Kal-El is now at the same approximate age as Superboy when he began his career, and is now dressed in a full Superboy costume, and is walking around a mock-up of Smallville. Back at the pavilion, Superman recalls that he had to learn to fly since he had been keeping his powers a secret for so long, and hadn't had a chance to actually practice that. And this is actually a really cool scene. I'm going to stop for a second and let you know. Uh, to learn how to fly, he's got a bunch of helium balloons attached to his arms and legs and body. And he's kind of got a leash around his waist that Pa Kent is kind of holding him and teaching him how to fly in circles. And he's learning how to use his hands and feet like rudders to bank and fly and do all kinds of stuff. It's really a realistic kind of approach to something that from an era where you don't see a whole lot of realistic you know, 
possibility, such as a guy in a cost in an indestructible costume flying around. Um, but soon he was making a name for himself as a hero and realized more was needed in order to keep his everyday identity a secret. So he started wearing glasses and slumps or and and learned to slump his shoulders, which compressed his spine so that Clark was shorter than Superboy. And Jonathan came up with the idea of acting weak and timid as Clark, and to make his voice higher than Superboy's. This all worked pretty well until Clark was forced to use his heat vision in secret, which caused the lenses of his glasses to melt. So once again, returning to his rocket, Clark studied the shattered window of the rocket and found two pieces that were fairly round. Uh, yes, the shattered window of the rocket found two pieces that were fairly round. The frames of his glasses covered the uneven edges, and now he was able to use his heat vision in secret without any problems. Other methods used to preserve his secret identity included a secret tunnel dug from the Kent basement to the nearby woods so he wouldn't be seen flying to and from the house, and building robots that could simulate his powers and appear as both Clark or Superboy when both needed to be seen at the same time. Superman is then brought back to reality when one of the kids asks about the kryptonite in the display case. He then explains the kryptonite is small chunks of krypton itself and was drawn to Earth through the space warp created by his rocket on its way to Earth. Other debris was also brought drawn to Earth as well, such as kryptonian weapons and the Phantom Zone projector. In fact, it was the study of this technology that allowed Superboy to build the mind probe array in the first place, which gave him a clearer picture of Krypton and allowed him to figure out how he got his powers. Part of it is due to Krypton being bigger than Earth and therefore having a stronger gravity, which gives him super muscles in Earth's lighter gravity. This also leads to his super speed, super lungs, and somehow leads to his anti-gravity ability to fly. Meanwhile, unlike Krypton's red sun, Earth's yellow sun energizes his body, making him invulnerable, sharpening his mind, and soups up his other senses such as his hearing and supervision powers. This helped him realize how special he was, and actually increased the loneliness he felt knowing that he was the last of his kind. But that quickly went away when Krypto's rocket landed on Earth. Suddenly, there were things that he could share with Crypto, such as the way the wind hits your face while you're flying at super speed, or the sound of bullets bouncing off of living flesh. After this, Superman pauses, giving Lois and Lana a chance to reflect on things out loud. Superman had told Lois that his time in Smallville was the happiest times of his life, but what terrible thing could have possibly happened to bring that time to an end? That is a pondering that does not escape Superman's super ears, and causes him to reflect on the tragedy that changed his life. It happened this summer after high school graduation. About a month after returning from a vacation to the Caribbean, the elder Kents fell death deathly ill with an unknown disease that not even a transfusion of super blood could cure. After they passed away, Clark makes a graveside promise to continue using his powers to help those that need help. And that night, Superboy left Smallville amid a small Bon Voyage party, and later, Clark takes the next bus to Metropolis alone. Next up is the Metropolis Room, where we learn that once Superboy turned 18, he moved to the closest city to Smallville, which is Metropolis, and soon came to be known as Superman. After graduating from Metropolis University with a bachelor's in journalism, Clark met with Perry White at the Daily Planet to get a job which he received a week later after bringing in an exclusive Superman story complete with pictures. 
Later, he got an apartment at 344 Clinton Street and modified it to hide some of his spare costumes and a couple of his super robots. However, he still needed a place to keep the rest of his equipment and memorabilia. So he built a fortress in the Arctic, which he soon had to add on to when his cousin arrived on Earth. Her name is Kara. She lived in Argos City, which was a Kryptonian city blasted into space intact and protected under a plexiglass dome. But when the asteroid was about to be destroyed, Kara's parents, Jorel's brother Zorel and his wife Allura, rocketed her to Earth in a costume similar to her cousin's. Once she arrived on Earth, she too became superpowered and spent a few years as Superman's secret weapon until she had mastered her powers. Once that had been accomplished, Superman revealed her existence to the world, and she's been fighting the forces of evil as Supergirl ever since. Surprised to learn that she's Superman's cousin and not his girlfriend, a few people ask if he's ever had a girlfriend, which he kind of dances around, but in his mind he recalls the girls who have stolen his heart, such as Lana Lang, Lori Lamaris, and Lois Lane. Next up is the Hall of Villains, where Superman introduces statues of Toyman, Parasite, Lex Luthor, and Brainiac. Thinking of Brainiac leads Superman to tell the story of Kandor. It was the original capital city of Krypton until Brainiac developed a shrinking ray that allowed him to shrink it and kidnap the entire city. It wasn't until years later, when he encountered Brainiac as Superman, that he found the city in a bottle aboard Brainiac's ship. For years, Superman kept the bottle in his fortress while he searched for a way to restore the city, which he eventually he did. But then, after restoring the city and its people to normal size in another world, the entire city crumbled to dust. Unfortunately, his restore array worked on organic beings, but inorganic matter could not survive the enla- could not survive the enlarging process. And after the citizens of Kandor resented Superman at first, they realized that he had provided them with a chance at a normal life on a new world, and were very grateful to him. So Superman left this new Krypton, which is actually in another dimension, and hasn't been seen since, but should reappear in our dimension at regular intervals, although at this point Superman does not know when it will return. Next, we learn more about the various forms of kryptonite. Green kryptonite kills kryptonians, red kryptonite causes temporary mutations, white kryptonite kills all plant life, gold kryptonite can remove a kryptonian's powers permanently, and blue kryptonite, which actually isn't mentioned in this issue but is kind of important, um, is deadly to bizarros. For a while, all the kryptonite on Earth had been changed to iron. See Superman 233, which I covered in episode 3 or 4. But large quantities have found their way to Earth recently, making it a continued threat to his existence. Other recent changes involve Superman having to retire his robots due to the increased pollution of the Earth, making them inoperable, which I also covered on a previous episode. Fortunately, Superman thinks to himself they still have their uses, at which point Clark catches up to Lois and Lana to join their tour group. At this point, Superman also thinks about some of the changes in Clark's life as well, such as Morgan Edge buying the Daily Planet and making Clark first a roving reporter and then an anchorman for the WGBS Evening News. 
But just as Superman leads the group around a corner, Arngrim activates a switch in the wall, which causes one of the overhead lamps to bathe Superman in green kryptonite rays, then causes a trap door to open under, a weakened, under the weakened Man of Steel, which he falls through, only to be replaced by the super clone from earlier, now grown into a fully adult Superman. While all of this goes unnoticed by the tourists above, Superman finds himself confronted by the only person on Earth who could have possibly concocted such a scheme, Lex Luthor. Luthor is in his purple and green jumpsuit, which, with Superman in a weakened and dazed state, makes Lex a match for the Man of Steel. So he wastes no time in physically attacking our hero. During the scuffle, he proceeds to explain that what has been going on behind the scenes. When Superman donated genuine Kryptonian artifacts for the pavilion, Luther placed one under a red sun lamp, which allowed him to cut it. From that piece of metal, he was able to cre create a small surgical instrument which he had Arngrim wear in his palm like a joy buzzer. When he shook hands with Superman, it was able to scrape off and collect a bit of Superman's skin. When Arngrim disappeared before the tour, he brought the skin sample to Luthor, who used it to create a clone of Superman. Also, while Superman was under the mind probe array, standing on a metal plate in the Superboy room, and standing in front of a projector in the Metropolis room, his mind was being scanned by Luthor's memory devices, which recorded his memories and duplicated them into the mind of the clone. Also, the Arngrim Superman met is actually a clone of the real Arngrim. At this point, Luthor forces Superman into a cage, inside which is the same red sun lamp that Lex mentioned just a little bit ago, and also beneath the cage is a device which duplicates Krypton's gravity, completely nullifying Superman's powers. Next, Lex activates an electric eye beam at the pavilion's exit. When the tourists leave in the next five minutes, they will trip it, which not only will activate a laser that will instantly kill the powerless Superman, it will also ignite a ton of plastique, destroying the pavilion and killing everyone inside, including Superman's closest friends. But Lex and his Superman clone will be long gone, with the clone taking Superman's place, even his secret identity. Of course, Lex doesn't know what that is yet, because he could only monitor the memory scans once, and he had to save that for when it came time for Superman's memories of Luther, so that he could alter them. Up above in the pavilion, the Superman clone returns to the statue of Lex and explains to everyone that he isn't really evil, just misunderstood, and fully takes the blame for ruining Lex's experiment as a child which led to Lex's hair loss and hatred of Superman, Superboy and later Superman. This causes Lois and Lana to argue with the clone about his thoughts on Luther, delaying their exit from the pavilion. So while Luther is busy getting the clone to direct everyone to the exit, the real steel deal is desperately trying to figure out a way to get out of his trap. Seeing the cage's keys hanging nearby, Superman Seeing the cage's keys hanging nearby, Superman removes Clark's tie from his cape pouch. Then he removes his Superman belt and ties the tie to the end of the belt. Then, he swings the belt toward the keys, snagging the key ring with his belt buckle. Soon, he's able to escape from the cage and turn off the, the, both the lamp and the gravity device. He then takes out Luther with a quick tap to the chin, 
And at this point, Lois decides to leave in disgust, and is just about to trip the electric eye when Superman's hand bursts up from the ground to grab her foot before she can take another step. Then, after disposing of the electric eye itself, Superman knocks the clone out of the pavilion through the roof. Then, joining the clone in the air, they have a short skirmish in the sky before Superman sends the clone back down to the pavilion, causing him to crash into the kryptonite exhibit, which also causes the kryptonite to be scattered around him. With the clone's powers now removed by the gold K in the exhibit, Superman uses his super breath to blow the kryptonite far enough away to prevent it from affecting him, and grabs the fleeing Arngrim clone and sends him flying at the super clone, knocking both of them out. With that done, Superman explains Luther's scheme to the crowd, and after Lois, applaud, Lois and Lana applaud Superman for using his mind as well as his powers to stop Luther, Superman states that it's happened so many times now that you might say it's the story of his life. The end. <sighs> now that was a long one, wasn't it? Well, while I go get a drink of water, here's a few promos to keep you occupied. Superman of the Bronze Age will be back after these messages. He said Mongo, Dindy. That's wrong character, wrong universe, and wrong galaxy. Hold on just one sec. Ah, here we go. Flash Legacies, a podcast connecting the adventures of Wally West, the third hero to be known as The Flash. Join me, Dave Walker, in my bi-weekly journey as I look at Wally's career from when he first donned the mantle of the Flash all the way up to the return of Barry Allen. Find me at flashlegacies.limpson.com The internet is really, really great For Guy Gardner Podcast I got a fast connection so I don't have to wait For Guy Gardner Podcasts There's always some new site For Guy Gardner Podcasts I browse all day and night For Guy Gardner Podcasts It's like I'm surfing at the speed of light For Guy Gardner Podcasts The internet is for Guy Gardner Podcasts The internet is for And sometimes Kyle Rayner Podcasts Why you think the net was born Guy Gardner Podcasts Just One of the Guys is a weekly internet radio show dedicated to bringing you reviews, commentary, and a heartfelt defense of the characters of Guy Gardner and Kyle Rayner, the two Earth-based Green Lanterns who always seem to get dumped on. Over the next several years, I will be covering the Green Lantern books from cover date June 1990 until cover date November 2004. I'll also be covering the Guy Gardner solo series, as well as any other media that catches my fancy. The show can be found on iTunes by searching for Just One of the Guys podcast, or by going to the website justoneoftheguys.lips.com. So be sure to tune in every Friday for a fun-filled look at the Green Lantern Corps, hosted by me, Sean Ingle.
It's just as enjoyable as the search for the subject that this song is actually about. Internet is for internet is for internet is for just one of the guys dot libsen dot com. Just one of the guys does not officially certify that this podcast is more enjoyable than pornography. Hey guys, Charlie here with a way that you can help support the show. This episode is sponsored by InStockTrades.com, where you can purchase trade paperbacks, graphic novels, and hardcovers at discounted prices. Here's a couple of examples, in keeping with our Secret Origin theme for the month. These are going to be from other eras of Superman, but first up is Man of Steel Volume 1, which reprints the six-issue Man of Steel miniseries by John Byrne that launched Superman's From Crisis to Crisis era. Now, the cover price on this bad boy is $14.99, but at in-stock trades, they knock 40% off that price so that you can buy this issue for just $8.99. Now, maybe you want something a little more recent. Well, how about Superman's Secret Origin, which reprints the six-issue miniseries of the same name by Jeff Johns and Gary Frank. In-stock trades has also applied their 40% discount to both the hardcover and the trade version of that, of that story. You can get the hardcover, which has a cover price of $29.99, for just $17.99. Or, you can get the trade, with a cover price of $19.99, for just $11.99. What more could anyone ask? So make sure you check them out at InStockTrades.com. And now, back to the show. We now return to Superman and the Bronze Age. I first read this issue in a reprint of the Tor book. It was black and white, and the panels had been resized and moved around to fit inside the smaller dimensions of the book. I didn't even know it was reprinted from a comic for quite a while, let alone which one it was. And although looking back, it does have credits in its... Although, looking back, the credits are still in the book, and there's a colorist credit, and it's in a black and white book, so I guess I should have figured it out. Oh well. We'll just say I was still a teenager when I got it. So, uh, First of all, I want to point out that the inside front cover and the inside back cover have an essay written by E. Nelson Bridwell covering the history of Action Comics' first 500 issues. It's actually a pretty, pretty interesting article covering the different features that have appeared in the book over the years, including the changes to Superman's powers and costumes, and everything else that's happened to the book since 1938. I'm going to include these pages in the show notes on the website at www.supermanandthebronzeage.com so you can read them there if you wish. As for our notes. First, I like how this issue basically starts the way the last origin ended. Also, it's basically the opening of of the Adventures of Superman show, which works very well in an issue looking at the character's past. Because it's an homage to the past. See how the... Anyway, <clears throat> page 7. I like how we start with Lara and Kal-El while Jor-El meets with the Science Council. Because of the importance of the meeting, we don't usually see either of them until Jor-El actually returns home. So it's really nice to see a bit of what they were doing while during that tense time while Jor-El was away. Meanwhile, we still get the whole description of what happened at the meeting. Page 13 some of Pasco's descriptions are really great and add an extra layer to a story that has been told so many times before that most people should know it 
by heart almost. On page 13, Superman mentions how he can hear the screams outside of his window as Krypton dies. If you just think about that for a minute, it adds realism and horror to an already terrible scene. Also, also, this is the first time that I've seen Lara in a pink outfit. See, in the days of limited colors, many characters are pretty much given consistently colored clothing, even though their co- the clothing itself tends to change. Clark, after they got past changing his suit colors all the time, reverted back to his regular blue suit with the red and black tie and a white dress shirt. No matter what. Lois, despite having different kinds of clothing, for the most part, her outfits were pink. Lana, Lana? I always call her Lana. Lana and Jimmy, and I'm guessing this is mostly because of their red hair, wear a lot of greens and browns. Perry generally wears a brown suit. Sometimes it's purple, because that's fashionable. Uh, Morgan Ed usually wears a brown suit. And Lara usually wears a yellow outfit of some kind, depending on who's drawing it and the style that they're going for for Kryptonian clothing, it can change its looks, but almost always she's wearing yellow. So this is the first time she's wearing something a different color, even though the outfit looks the same as what she'd been wearing the previous few pages. And it's really not a huge deal. It doesn't affect the story, but a colorist like me notices things like that, so it's kind of an interesting thing. Um, page 16... In the Superboy room, we see statues for the Legion of Superheroes, but they're never actually mentioned in the story. Now, I don't know if that's because of a lack of room, or because of the fact that it wasn't too long from now that there was a whole History of the Legion of Superheroes miniseries put together, so possibly that affected that, or maybe Pasco just, and, or... Schwartz decided that that wasn't a huge enough, a big enough event to touch upon in a story that's basically Superman's life. I'm not sure. But we do see the then current lineup of the Legion of Superheroes in statue form. Page 21. Okay, so the explosion of the rocket doesn't cause much damage, which is fine. I mean, I guess it's a super rocket. Granted, it's super fuel, so it should blow it up pretty good. But it doesn't. Um... But unlike the last origin we covered, the Kents actually hide the rocket before going to the orphanage. Now this makes a lot of sense. One, it's going to keep the secret a secret. The fact that he's from space and came out of rocket. Two, it's not driving around with a futuristic looking rocket in the back of your pickup truck into a small town. Small towns and depending on where you're listening to this. Small towns in America, I don't care when this occurs, small towns in America have this thing where the citizens, just about everybody know each, knows each other or knows someone that knows everyone else, that kind of thing. If something happens to one person in town, everyone in town is going to know. So if one person sees Jonathan and Martha Kent drive in with a metallic, futuristic-looking rocket, sitting in the tr- but the bed of their pickup truck, the whole town of Smallville is going to know that the Kents drove into town with a rocket in the back of the truck, messing things up when Superboy shows up, I would imagine. So it's good that they hid it beforehand, and I like that. 
Page, I already did 21. Page 24. Okay, so now we know how Superman made his cost. Oh well. Okay, so now we know how Superboy made his costume. I'm thinking there must be a bunch of yellow. Uh, I'm thinking that there must be a bunch of the yellow blanket left over though, because it's the same size as the blue and red blankets, but the only yellow. Uh, stuff that we see that's made of fabric in the costume might be the S on his cape and the yellow parts of the S on his chest. So that's a little weird. Also, and this is something that always bugged me, they don't mention it here. Maybe Pasco realizes the silliness of it, but I'm going to go with it. I've also read different other, or other origins of the Superboy, co- the Superboy slash Superman costume. And it's basically this story. Uh, very little gets changed. Maybe Jonathan doesn't always create the S. It's just kind of something he com- uh, Superboy comes up with. Whatever. But here's the thing. The idea that Martha made a small little play suit for, ba- for little Clark so he didn't bust up his clothes anymore makes perfect sense. I think that I think that's a perfectly logical thing. Now, again, they skipped it in this, but previous stories have said that when he outgrew this costume, he started wearing, he was old enough that he could start wearing normal clothes and control his powers better. Also fine. But then the idea is that Martha basically uses up the rest of the blanket to unravel it and recreate it as the Superboy costume. After that, the idea is that it stretches as Superboy grows into Superman. Okay, that... See, that's my problem. If he outgrew it when he was a super... when he was a little kid, what makes it suddenly grow now that he needs the costume from as Superboy and Superman? Number one. Number two. That might work with the bodysuit. How does the cape grow? Because I'm going to tell you right now, if you're eight years old and you've got a cape on that goes to maybe the back of your knees, by the time you're 29, as he's supposed to be here, that cape is going to be maybe to the waist, not even that far. So, but somehow the cape stretches. Again, another one of those things you got to stretch. It's comic book physics, what have you. I just, that's one of those things that's always annoyed me, and of course we do know that the cape stretches, because that has been that has been shown, but it always stretches back, it comes back to the size that it's supposed to be to fit Superman. Of course, if you think about it also, if the cape was long enough for Superman to fit, to go to work at, for Superman down to his, the back of his knees, as Superboy, he'd be dragging it all over the place. So, who knows, maybe he folds more under the color of his costume when he's a kid. I don't I don't know. Anyway, if you can see probably why Pasco decided to skip that part. Uh, 32, uh, page 32, another example of Pascal adding new layers to the familiar tale is his description of Superboy being able to share experiences with Crypto in a way that he couldn't with anyone else. I mean, seriously... Who would have thought to include the bit about the sound of bullets bouncing off of human flesh or the way wind feels when you're flying at super speed? I mean, that... I never would have noticed that. It just would have been like, because they could do the same stuff. 
but he describes it in such detail it's like you can't even imagine what the sound what it sounds like cuz when you see it on TV or in the movies it's just ping ping which is what it would sound like by bouncing off a of metal but if you think about it it's flesh so wonder what that would sound like page 36 after the kids die clark starts to get uh, kind of Peter Parkerish, uh, but when he begins to think that everything he touches dies and that he dooms everyone he loves just by loving them. But then he remembers what his foster parents taught him and pushes those thoughts away, thereby demonstrating some of the fundamental differences between him and Spider-Man in just a couple of panels. Also, the fact that he doesn't wear a mask, but that's not the point. Next up, we have the Hall of Villains. That is a pretty incomplete Hall of Villains. Um, it would have been nice to see Bizarro. Uh, there's no Terra Man. You don't see images for the Phantom Zone villains. And I'm sure there's others I'm not thinking about right off the top of my head. But, you know, it's pretty incomplete because I literally explain... Mr. Mixias Pedelec isn't in there. Hello. Um, the other Toy Man isn't in there. Master Jailer isn't in there. And he's been around at this point. Yeah. So, you know... There's other guys that could have been included, but they didn't. At this point, possibly it's a space thing, because we're getting close to the end of the story. Makes sense. Page 59, I find it hard to believe that Lex didn't hear Superman snatch the keys off the hook when he escaped. If you've got keys hanging on a wall, and you use a tie and a belt to try to get them off the little hook, they're going to crash to the floor. That's going to make noise. I don't plastic keys, metal keys, whatever, it's going to make noise. Apparently, Lex was so busy trying to get every, get the clone to get everyone out of the pavilion that he didn't even notice it. Overall, this is a very, very, and probably the most thorough review of Superman's life and origin in the Bronze Age, and is one of the few to actually cover his Superman career as well. Ironically, most of the previous tellings of Superman's origins cover up until he gets to Metropolis and then just ends, basically like last time. Um, whereas this one actually had the space to cover events from his Superman career. As for the art, I like Swan's art here. It's very comparable to the last time, I think. And he does a very good job of reproducing images from comics from the past that when they, some of these stories were originally told. I can't tell you how many times I've seen the same panel where Martha and Jonathan are testing out the blankets with a pitchfork, a gun, a shotgun, and some fire. or No, dynamite. So that's actually really cool. However... I'm not a huge fan of Frank Cermonti's inks. They aren't terrible, and there are places where they look really good. But for the most part, they make the art look really flat, which is really saying something on a 2D surface. A lot of other inkers give it kind of, do some shading and stuff to give it kind of a depth so that he at least looks like they're trying to create a 3D character, which is really important considering the limitations of printing of the printing and coloring at this time, when you really couldn't shade in much. But his inks just make it look even flatter. Having said that, 
I really recommend this issue to anyone if you can find it or the Tor book, as it's the most comprehensive look at the origins of the Bronze Age Superman you will find. Uh, it's accurate and up-to-date up to 1979. I mean, literally, the whole enlarging Candor had only happened maybe a year before. Um, and it's got all the information that you would have found in any of the previous origins. It includes the Superboy stuff. It includes Superman stuff. It includes even up to GBS. And basically it tells you everything that ever happened to him, uh, all the important uh, moments of his life up to 1979. And since there's technically only about six years left of the Bronze Age when this came out, you aren't missing a whole lot. So if you want to see, the, if you want to know a thorough look at the origin of the Silver slash Bronze Age Superman, this is the book for you. Some of the other comics that came out the same month as this book, just to give you an idea of where the rest of the DC Universe was at this time, Batman number 316 came out with, a, with special guest star Robin as they take on Crazy Quilt. Since it's 79, that would still be the Dick Grayson Robin. Uh, DC Comics Presents number 14 came out with Superboy teaming up with, or actually with Superman teaming up with Superboy in the 1979 present. It's pretty interesting. Superboy looks like it looks like uh, Superboy's about to kill Superman. It's kind of freaky. Uh, there was two DC special series that came out. DC Special Series 18 was Sergeant Rock's Prize Battle Tales, which not only covers some of his stories, but also Enemy Ace and the Unknown Soldier. There's The Secret Origin of the DC Superheroes, uh, which features several origins, but obviously, because of the f book that we just covered, Superman's origin isn't in there. Instead, you get the origin of the Superman-Batman team. Uh, you get The Secret Origin of Wonder Woman, the origin of the Elongated Man, Aquaman's origin. What I'm guessing is the Legion of Superheroes. Hawkman, Robin, and Supergirl. So that's pretty thorough. Which is, makes sense since Supergirl's origin was only touched upon on one page in Action 500. Detective Comics number 486 features Superman trying to figure out how someone got killed by a Thunderbolt. And Robin takes on the Scarecrow as well as a Batgirl story and bonus stories featuring the human target and Alfred. So, that's pretty cool. Flash, number 278, came out this month, featuring the Flash against Captain Boomerang. Justice League of America 171 came out, featuring a JLA-JSA team-up in which one of the heroes from the two teams has died, and one of them is the killer. Raven the Bold number 155 features a team-up of Batman and Green Lantern. There is Green Lantern number 121, because Green Lantern Hal Jordan got his own book again by this point. Super Friends number 25 features Superman, uh, the Super Friends against Overlord, which is a story that not only features the Super Friends and the Wonder Twins, but also seven guest stars. Superboy and the Legion of Superheroes, number 256. 
uh, features secrets ever before revealed in This Is Your Life and Death, Brainiac 5. In Superman number 340, Superman takes on The Walking Bomb with a really cool Jose Luis Garcia Lopez cover. Wonder Woman number 260. Looks like Wonder Woman's about to go to jail. Interesting. And finally, World's Finest number 259 in which Superman and Batman must try to figure out why Gotham City is a ghost town and that the citizens are trying to invade Metropolis. Also featuring stories of Green Arrow and Hawkman, Black Lightning, and Captain Marvel. Or Shazam, as he's known. Now, before we go to Superboy in the Bronze Age, I'd like to hear from you, our lovely listeners. What is your favorite version of the Superman origin story? And I'm opening this up to all the tellings of the Superman origin from the short version way back in action number one to the new 52 origin and recent issues of the not really rebooted action comics, even though technically it was rebooted. Um, And this also includes in cartoons, movies, newspaper strips, any form of super, any origin of Superman in any media. Which version is your favorite? Just email me your answer at superbronze1970 at gmail.com and also let me know why you chose that specific story uh, and I will read it on the very next on our very next episode. So get typing. Next up is J. David Weeder's Superboy in the Bronze Age. But first, a promo for another podcast he does, The New 52 Adventures of Superman. Superman of the Bronze Age will be back after these messages. On May 30th, 2011, DC Comics announced the historic renumbering of all their superhero titles, and the internet broke in half. No. No. It's not true. That's impossible! Critics and naysayers abounded. Confusion reigned across fandom. What'll I do? What'll I do? What an unusual view! Not to mention the first reactions to the Supergirl costume. I hated her so much. It, it, the, it, flame, flames, flames on the side of my face, breathing, breath, heaving breaths, heaving. But then the books actually hit. And opinions... He likes it! He likes it! Opinions began to change. The New 52 Adventures of Superman is a monthly podcast where John Wilson, J. David Weider, and Michael Kaiser take a look at each of the adventures of Superman and his family of characters in Action Comics. You know the deal, Metropolis. Treat people right or expect a visit from me. The Superman who appeared six months ago could hurdle skyscrapers and toss trucks around. Now it's faster, now it's stronger. How soon before it can't be stopped? Superboy. If resolving a situation for him is going to get me out from under these people once and for all, that's a small price to pay for freedom. Release the Superboy. Supergirl. Okay. Giant metal creatures. Falling from the sky. Speaking in clicks and beeps. Father would love this dream. And Superman. You could do so much good. We could do so much good. I am doing good, Lois. Clark's such a loner. Never really lets anyone get close to him. 
The New 52 Adventures of Superman. Available the first of every month on iTunes and at new52superman.libsyn.com. We now return to Superman and the Bronze Age. The Adventures of Superboy. Exciting stories of Superman when he was a boy, who even as an infant demonstrated powers and abilities far beyond the capabilities of Earthlings. Superboy, who as Clark Kent, mild-mannered foster son of Martha and Jonathan Kent, preserves the secret of his true identity and devotes his superpowers to the prevention of crime, the preservation of peace, and the pursuit of truth. Hello, super friends, and welcome to another astonishing installment of Superboy in the Bronze Age. I am your host, J. David Weeder, looking at a random adventure of Superman when he was a boy, published between 1970 and 1985 or 1986-ish. This time around, in the spirit of Secret Origins Month, I have chosen The Forging of Young Batman. How does a lonely orphan, seared by hatred, become a mighty hero? How does iron become steel? You hammer it, mold it, and forge it in flame which is the thesis of this story, written by Leo Dorfman, with penciler Bob Brown, inked by Murphy Anderson. And this story appeared in Superboy Volume 1, number 182, cover dated February of 1970, but you would have found this 48-page comic on stands on December 28, 1971, and it would have cost you a whopping 25 cents. And the cover is by Nick Cardi and features a transparent, ghostly version of Superman and Batman cast against a stark blue background, and Superman tells the Dark Knight detective that it is time to reveal their secret, the tragedy that brought them together as boys. In the foreground, Superboy stands looking down at his feet, sad as his cape waves in the wind, and young Bruce Wayne shakes his fist angrily at Superboy as he leans on the tombstones of Thomas and Martha Wayne, yelling at the boy is still, telling him that his mother and father are dead, and it's all Superboy's fault. How could he let this happen? And the story opens not in Smallville, but at an emergency meeting of the DC Comics editors. After all of these years, they find the real story lost in the files. It could be dynamite, but maybe they should keep it buried. The head editor, who I assume is maybe Julia Schwartz, stands up at the end of the table, slamming his fist down and declaring, No, our readers deserve the truth. Let's lay our cards on the table and tell it like it really was. And so opens the story of the decade, starting at the Smallville General Store, with Jonathan Kent and Clark Kent stocking shelves. And Clark is packing glasses up, being very careful to wrap them in newspaper to protect them. As he does so, Clark notices a headline from the Gotham Gazette about the murder of Thomas and Martha Wayne. Shocked, Clark decides to rush to Gotham City as Superboy. The Boy of Steel arrives at stately Wayne Manor to find, thanks to X-ray vision, a thief slipping into the mansion by way of an underground storm drain. So Superboy drills through the ground and comes up through the basement floor only to find that the thief has been trapped by a Tesla coil that's shooting electrical bolts, keeping him trapped. A shadowy figure appears at the door of the room and tells Superboy that he wasn't needed. And young Bruce Wayne enters the room, having made the trap himself. Superboy tells Bruce that he read about the Wayne's death, and Bruce demands to know where Superboy was. Isn't he the sworn enemy of crime, after all? Superboy tells Bruce that he was off the earth at the time, and even Superboy can't be everywhere at once. But he will help Bruce track the killer down. Bruce tells Superboy to forget it. Revenge belongs to him, and adds that Superboy can take the petty thief away. 
Superboy does fly the thief off to the local police, thinking about the hero that Bruce will become. A future Superboy is seen with a machine called the Timescope. Aware of the future world's finest team, Superboy refuses to give up on the revenge-obsessed Bruce and goes back to Wayne Manor. Bruce is training on acrobatic rings, lifting weights, practicing his judo. He's obsessed with revenge, and Bruce has hidden a police-scan radio in a vault horse that blares about a fire sweeping through the Gotham Museum. So Superboy takes off to fight the fire, leaving Bruce to place a Zodiac chart on the wall because the crime he is waiting for is written in the stars. Looking closer at the charts, Bruce notes that the date is February 18th, the last day of Aquarius, which means that the crime he is looking for should happen before the date ends. And as if by providence or plot convenience, the hidden radio notes that a trailer truck has plunged off the docks at First Street. Bruce deduces that this is the crime and pulls out a set of black clothes from a trunk. Meanwhile, Superboy has rescued all of the priceless art from the museum, as well as the arsonists who are wearing asbestos suits. And then he goes to the dock himself, where the Gotham Police Department is having issues pulling the truck out with their crane. Well, Superboy easily plucks the truck out of the water and is filled in by a Gazette reporter named Higby. This is not an accident. Higby points out a pair of wriggly lines on the ground, the sign of Aquarius, the calling sign of the Zodiac Killer. The killer commits a murder once a month, leaves the sign for the Zodiac for the month at the scene. The sign of the scorpion was left at the scene of a jeweler's death by a poison ring. The sign of Capricorn was left at a car accident in the wrought iron fence that it crashed into. The sign of the archer was left at the scene of a fatal shooting, and now Aquarius for murder by drowning. Superboy is taking note of something when he notices a shadowy figure rushing into a nearby warehouse. Superboy chases the figure, who turns out to be Bruce, clad in a simple black bodysuit. Bruce has been collecting evidence since the fatal shooting that Higby mentioned, and that fatal shooting was the, actually the murder of the Waynes. So the Zodiac Killer is the murderer of Bruce's parents, and the one he's seeking revenge on. Bruce is still obsessed with murderous revenge, and tells Superboy that he's just jealous because Bruce will be the greatest superhero of all time, even without Superboy's great powers. Superboy leaves the angry Bruce and once again looks at the time scope, this time reprogramming it to see what would be if Superboy can help Bruce contain all of his rage. So what he sees is, is the potential that Bruce has. So Superboy goes to his disguise closet as a dark figure elsewhere looks at the Zodiac chart, thinking that he will need to plan something to coincide with the sign of Pisces, the fish. Back at Wayne Manor, Bruce shows the boy of tomorrow his cave, filled with a certain winged creature that will one day define him, and Superboy presents Bruce with a costume that basically has a purple bodysuit, black boots, gloves, cape, and a cowl without the bat ears and certain insignia. It looks very much like what Bruce will wear years down the line. And instead of taking up the mantle of Bat-Lad, as Superboy expected, Bruce decides to call himself the Executioner and the executioner uses his computer to deduce the next crime of the Zodiac Killer, a fishing derby on March 15th, a derby that Bruce Wayne will win thanks to a handy chemical that attracts fish. So at the derby sometime later, Bruce does indeed win by catching a world record swordfish, and while on a barge having his picture taken, Bruce is nearly killed when a, that very fish falls from the rope it's hanging on. Superboy pushes Bruce out of the way just in time, but the large fish has punctured the bottom of the barge, which is now sinking. 
So Superboy uses the anchor chains to drag the barge to shore as Bruce changes into his executioner costume and snags the culprit, the reporter Higby. And the executioner explains to Superboy that Higby was taking too long to climb off the boat. And Bruce found the sign of the Zodiac Killer, the sign of Pisces, which looks like two arcs linked together. Higby begs for the executioner to let him explain and reveals that the Zodiac Killer is indeed invented. Basically, Higby was down on his luck, about to lose his job, so he started placing the signs of the Zodiac at various crimes to create a sensational news story, including the sign at Wayne Manor, at the Wayne murder. Bruce isn't convinced, but Clark points out that the sign of Pisces carved in the boat is actually the links of the anchor chain, and the wriggly lines at the scene of the truck crash were actually made by the tread on the tires of the truck itself. So Superboy delivers Higby to the police and returns to Bruce, who still just has not given up. If there's no Zodiac killer, who cut the rope the fish was hanging from? Superboy has an answer for that, too, and explains that the chemical Bruce was using to attract the fish reacted badly with the salt water and created a corrosive agent that ate through the rope. So Bruce is a bit humbled and tells Superboy to just stop picking him apart. Superboy is tired of making his point, so he bids Bruce farewell, even as Bruce wonders if he did anything right, or was Superboy helping him the whole time. So with the seeds of doubt in young Bruce, making him begin to realize the difference between revenge and justice, Superboy flies off, thinking of the great team that he and Bruce will one day make as Superman and Batman. And if you want to read this story, it is actually reprinted in Superboy, the greatest team-up stories ever told, trade paperback. Now let's take a look at this story page by page, shall we? And we're going to start with the cover, which, just to be honest, this cover pops. The trade dress rests on a really nice canary yellow background. The main image is cast against that flat blue I mentioned. The ghostly figures of Superman and Batman are quite ominous, and kind of give the comic the feeling of tying more directly into the more current, or at least at that time, current version of the DCU, and the more familiar heroes that are still on the Saturday morning cartoons. Superboy is quite simple, straightforward, and that works, since this is really more Bruce's story than Clark's. And Bruce is a more... He's wearing a more direct prototype of the Batman costume. Really, it's only missing the cowl and the emblem on the chest. And seeing... The main thing about this is, when you see the Wayne's tombstones, whether on a cover or in the book itself, it's usually a pretty galvanizing sight. Because you know when the, the Waynes are brought in as a, into the equation, whether it's their corpse in, in the JLA Tower of Babel, or, you know, just the, the general idea. When you see them, or you see their tombstones, you get a Batman that is more... He's ferocious, he's visceral, and he's emotional. It's kind of Batman's kryptonite. So, that element alone would make any comic fan in 1971 stand up and take note. And kind of going into the pages... On page one, we get one panel of the DC offices, which runs the very serious risk of taking the reader right out of the story, but luckily that doesn't happen here. Now also, usually we see some tongue-in-cheek captions, pardon me, tongue-in-cheek captions, identifying the actual editor names, but nothing here. And I'll be honest with you, if I was one of the editors at the time, I wouldn't claim to be in this panel, just on the very merit of the fashions we see here. On the same page, we come to the general store. I don't know if I mentioned this last time, but at this time, Jonathan and Martha have sold the Kent farm, and they've moved into a quaint house within Smallville proper, 
and opened up a general store, which we will see Clark working at quite often, basically stocking the shelves. It's usually a really good place for exposition, uh, talking head scenes. But my main note on this pan on this page is actually on panel three when we see Clark's copy of the Gotham Gazette, which seems to have made its way all the way to Smallville. Smallville is a bit of an anomaly, and this made me think of this. We don't necessarily know that Smallville has that many outlets for newspapers. Uh, surely a, a town of this size wouldn't have newsstands on every corner like you would see in Metropolis. Or really, you would, what would you have? You wouldn't have necessarily any bookstores. So, I mean, I would assume that either the general store carries it, or it falls into the Smallville anomaly that these wouldn't exist unless the story decides that Smallville needs one. So, of course, Smallville is kind of the biggest small town ever, because it grows and shrinks at the whim of the writer from story to story. There's always more and more factories, less and less factories, more farm fields, less farm fields. It's, it's an anomaly, and I'm just going to tell you that right up front. Just when things like that pop up, let's just take them in stride. I don't want to make copious notes of how big Smallville is in one issue next to the other. So that, just wanted to get that out of the way. Now we can move on to pages two and three. This is an awesome two-page splash. But the, this is kind of the crux of the story for me, because I, I am really left wondering if the thief that gets caught in the Tesla coil trap is Joe Chill, who is, well, it would be a world of irony, because Bruce is chasing the Zodiac Killer with all the revenge and hatred in his heart, while his parents' real murderer, Joe Chill, may have plopped right into his hands. For me, to keep my sanity, to put this story in the right context of epicness, I have to believe that this wasn't a coincidence that this guy happened to look like Joe Chill that we're going to see down the line. I want to believe that so much that I'm ascribing it to the story, and with that, it makes the story go from good to great. And that may be my own contribution to it, as I mentioned, but if you look at this, I think you'll appreciate the story more if you just stick to that assumption, even though it is never actually said. Uh, moving on to page four, we have the standard Bruce Wayne crouching by the bodies of his slain parents in the circle of a street lamp light and pure darkness all around. This is well over a decade before David Mazzalucci and, and Frank Miller would make that picture immortal in Batman Year One. So I just want that noted. And page five, I don't like when Superboy knows his future by way of machine. And I know it can be said that Hanging with the Legion does clue him in a bit, but they do go out of their way to make sure he doesn't know too much about his future, and this machine is just contrived. Because when you think about it from the right perspective, from a storytelling perspective, wouldn't a young Superboy have enough to deal with in terms of present-day villains and emergencies without adding the knowledge that, as an adult, he's still dealing with the same things, maybe on a bigger scale, but the same things. That would just be a depressing turn of events. And maybe Superboy as a character, strictly from a storytelling standpoint, would end up taking more drastic actions to change the future, so maybe Superman isn't necessary. So maybe a scenario kind of like what we see in Superman Red, Superman Blue, that Silver Age story where they pretty much eradicate any need for a Superman. They, they basically they price themselves out a little too much. It's a very dangerous plot device to have laying around, and obviously nobody's going to pull that trigger, but it did bother me. It stayed in the back of my head quite a bit after I read this. 
So let's move to page six. Bruce the Brat, the, brat, the spoiled, angry, rich boy. My parents are dead. And I don't want to downplay somebody who has lost their parents. Obviously, we're dealing with fictional characters, so let's do remain in that context. I don't want angry letters filling up Charlie's inbox. Um, but with Bruce, it was really odd that once I got to this point in the story, as I was reading it, I kept going back to a story from Detective Comics number 500 called To Kill a Legend. Now, when I read this, it was in The Greatest Batman Stories Ever Told, which is a collection I highly recommend. This, is, this would be the original printing of the original collection. Now, in that story, which was written by Alan Brennert and drawn by the great Dick Giordano, the Phantom Stranger shows up and gives Batman and Robin, who tags along, the chance to travel to a parallel Earth, and he's able to stop the murder of Thomas and Martha Wayne on that Earth, so it doesn't happen there. Now, along the way, Robin does actually encounter the young Bruce Wayne, who is just an insufferable, spoiled brat. Little Bruce is so bad that Robin actually wonders for a moment if the Waynes dying is really such a bad thing, which is scary. Now, in the end, Batman does stop the murder, spoiler, and it's implied that Little Bruce will become the Batman on that Earth, but from a different point of view. It's not out of the revenge or the justice. He's out of awe and inspiration for what he saw in Crime Alley that night. And it's the same dynamic that we see here kind of changing that bratty Bruce into something more heroic. We have Superboy showing him up a bit, making him humble, and really, in terms of the evolution of the Batman character, there has to be that kind of moment. Because Bruce is full of too much anger and too much potential to not be humbled at some point and realize that he is only human. And I will actually point you, this is a little spur-of-the-minute thought, if you have not downloaded the digital Batman story, I believe it is Legends of the Dark Knight, called The Butler Did It, that actually plays with that same theme, So, and I actually enjoyed the heck out of that. And here, kind of going back to that, going back to the story itself, Bruce is young. He's not a teenager yet, although I will make a note that his visual age in the story kind of weaves in and out. But in terms of the chronology, the actual age... He has no real coping mechanism for the death of his parents, and what essentially amounts to post-traumatic stress that he's surely suffering. But, by the same token, Superboy really isn't the authority on psychology, and he's basically being a little heavy-handed with Bruce. He's a bit more blunt and assertive and tactless in terms of his feelings on Bruce's attitude. So maybe a little bit of sensitivity, letting Bruce talk it out, would have been better, but that's maybe going a bit more into superhero psychology than we have time for. So my next note is on page 8, very short note, the tread of the tires causing the wiggly lines. Now this is basically two W's, uh, kind of like a very simple Wonder Woman symbol. With lame tread like that, it's no wonder that the truck ended up in the river. I know, once again, story convenience. Um, page 9, Higby, this guy looks very disconcerting. And normally he would raise that villain red flag, just like when somebody shows up in one of those old Marvel stories that looks creepy. They're probably going to end up being the, the mystery villain. Basically looking at him, I can smell the beef jerky, the cheap cigarettes, the stale coffee aroma just rolling off of him. But I didn't see the twist of the story. I will admit that. Even though it's right in front of us, especially in panel four, we actually see the tire and the tread. And Higby oddly looks like Green Hornet, thanks to the coloring technology of the 70s. Um, jumping to page 10, 
Bruce and Superboy are in a warehouse, which has very notable, very upfront spider webs in the background, and I immediately feel like I'm reading Amazing Fantasy 15. I don't know if the homage was intentional, but it's very much there. And kind of coming to page 15, I like the Executioner outfit, save the purple color. I don't like the color, because it immediately makes me think of the Kenner Batman toys, which just had way too many bad ideas coming out. We had, I don't know how many, over 200 Batman figures, individual Batman figures, and there was one that was dressed in purple. I mean, these were ideas like Lava Fury Batman. So, I mean, it just immediately trips that trigger. And really, that's where my page-by-page ends. Not a lot on the last seven pages, because a lot of my notes were addressed already. Um, Overall, the art was solid, but didn't have any, oh, look at that moments. And the story was good, but outside of the Joe Chill factor, which I've ascribed here, which we can't put in official canon, unless it's in my head, and hopefully your head, hopefully I've convinced you, but you would think, with two of DC's biggest characters meeting for the first time, you would have a more monumental villain, or the seeds of their nemeses, maybe Lex and Joker, and while this doesn't rip the straightforward story to shreds, because it is rather enjoyable, I did find myself thinking about other versions of the world's finest meetup, though. While this was fun, I really went back to John Byrne's versions of the Superman-Batman meetup. Um, A little bit in Man of Steel, but primarily for me, Superman-Batman generations came to mind, which I would highly recommend the original four-issue miniseries. And there's actually two... Within the four-issue miniseries, there's actually two different meetups. Very, very good, very epic, very what it should be. And so, I mean, for this story, for something that could have been epic, it was pretty pedestrian. It was fun. It was an enjoyable read, but it wasn't something on a scale that a meeting of this magnitude deserves. And with that, we wrap up this installment of Superboy in the Bronze Age. I'm going to hand it back to Charlie. Until next time, I am J. David Weeder, watching over Smallville. All right, thank you, David. And that about wraps up this month, this episode of Superman in the Bronze Age. Thank you for downloading this episode, and make sure you come back next time as we begin Movie Month. Next month, which is July of 2012, two big blockbuster movies will be released, starring two of the most well-known superheroes ever. But did you know that Superman got to team up with both of them in separate adventures in the Bronze Age? That's right. And so next month, we'll be covering an adventure of Superman with each hero. First up, since his movie comes out first, Superman teams up with The Amazing Spider-Man, featuring a couple of guests to help me cover this monumental event, so I hope to see you then. Thank you for listening to Superman in the Bronze Age, hosted by Charlie Meyer. The home of the show is at www.supermaninthebronzeage.com where you will find show postings, links to the RSS and iTunes feeds, and more. You can also find the show on Facebook, where you'll get a little notice whenever a new episode is posted. Superman in the Bronze Age is also a proud member of the Superman Podcast Network, which is at www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. There you will find postings for this show, as well as many other Superman-related podcasts. Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster, and is copyright DC Comics. Thank you all for listening. And God bless.